what makes you successful? And he said, making the right decisions or making good decisions. And then they asked him, well, what makes you make good decisions? And he said, experience. And they said, what gives you experience? He said, making poor decisions, making mistakes. You're listening to Elevate, the official podcast of Elite Agent for real estate industry sales professionals, property managers, and leaders. With thanks to our partner Connect Now, Elevate brings you the best tools, thinking, and strategies to elevate your results. To get access to all of Elite Agent's premium resources, including a detailed episode guide for this podcast, visit joineliteagent.com. And for more information about how Connect Now can make moving easier on your clients, visit connectnow.com.au. Here is your host, Samantha McLean. Hey, hey, everyone. It's Sam here. Today, we've got a pretty special guest joining us, a multiple area McGrath and REB award winner who has been redefining real estate in Brisbane's inner west. Last year, he sold 126 properties with a median price of 1.8 million on realestate.com.au to make him the top areas agent for Queensland second time in 2022. From effective marketing strategies to handling the current market, we're about to explore Alex Jordan's secret to success. So Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Sam. It was amazing to get to talk to you and I'm sure everyone in Queensland knows exactly who you are. I mean, I've moved to Queensland and I certainly do. So just for everyone else around Australia, could we start with a little bit about how you got into real estate? Did you choose real estate or did real estate choose you? No, that's a good question. I didn't have ambitions to become a real estate agent when I was young. I don't know many that do. I don't think we go through school thinking, oh, one day I'll be a real estate agent. So it was a profession that I guess I fell into to some degree. I was a struggling musician. I had a scholarship to study jazz piano at the Queensland Conservatorium of Music. I came out of that with a six-piece band. We were doing gigs around town struggling to make a living. It was tough financially. So I had to find a job that was going to pay me something, an income. And I didn't have any qualifications. I had a poor OP from school, didn't really have parents that had any sort of opportunities to present to me. So what am I going to do? I had a friend who owned a car dealership and I approached him for a job as a salesperson selling used cars, very low-end cars. And that opportunity was given to me. I was there for a couple of months I was selling one car for $100. That was the deal back then. This was back in 98. And after a couple of months, a number of weeks, he came to me and said, look, this doesn't work for me because those customers that you're serving, I would serve myself and I wouldn't have to pay you. And I was selling about six or seven cars a week. So back in 98, 99, $600, $700 a week was decent income. For me, it was. So he wanted me out and I had to find another job. And I was looking in the Back then, it was a classified section of the Courier Mail newspaper in Brisbane. And there was an ad in the paper that said, you want to earn $250,000 a year and have great work-life balance, which I fell for and thought, yeah, that sounds good to me. I'll take that. So I tried to reach out to this guy. His name is Doug. And I called, I left messages, I emailed, no response. I think it took six, seven, eight attempts. And then finally, I sent him a cheeky text message. And back then, texts weren't as common as they are today. He picked up the phone straight away after that text and said, come and speak with me. And I didn't own a car. I didn't own a suit. This is back in 99. I didn't know where this Tuong suburb was. I lived and grew up on the other side of town. So I borrowed my dad's Mitsubishi Express van. I took the Refidex or UBD, whichever one you call it, and found out where I need to go. I wore this really dorky costume with a Donald Duck Mickey Mouse tie and 
baggy suit that didn't fit me. And off I went to Toowong new venue. And got to Toowong, sat down with Doug. It was very polite and said, look, Alex, you don't have the qualifications or the experience to become an agent, but I think you're very persistent and I like your attitude and your work ethic. Wasn't planning on hiring anyone for this role, but would you be my assistant and you know do what other jobs we give you in the office? And I took that role and that entitled, you know, I had to do for sale signs and rental inspections and we took photos back then ourselves and have a camera and an SD card and I'd go and take photos for the agents and do whatever I was told. And that happened for about six or eight months. And then I finally got an opportunity to get into sales. And my first year of sales was more or less just buyer servicing. I was given a list of open house buyers that had come through over the past five, six years. It was a big pile of A4 sheets. And I just called through each person and all day I would spend calling through, cleaning that database. And people like, no, we bought, but we're looking to sell or our kids are looking to buy now, but we bought years ago. And we're, How did you get my number? Don't call me again. So I went through that list and in my first year, I did quite well just servicing buyers and introducing them to other agents' properties. And that's how I guess I started within the industry. Amazing. That's a fantastic story. I was about to actually stalk your Instagram and I was going to ask you to tell us something that we didn't know about you, but that's an amazing story. Do you still play piano and all of that sort of thing? I do, not as much as I'd like, but I still play, not professionally. I don't do any gigs or anything or any recordings. I just do it for a hobby and probably more my children into it now and I support them in their music sort of journey, I, I could say. Yeah, amazing. And so in that time that you spent, sort of sounds a bit like the apprentice, if you like, you know, learning from somebody else, what do you think was the most valuable lesson that you learned back then that you've always held with you since? I think it was work ethic and resilience and they're important for me. I think when I look for people to hire or team up with, I think emotional resilience is really important in this industry because you get these peaks and troughs, whether it's market cycles or personal issues, it's an up and down world. So you've got to be able to navigate through that. When I first started in real estate, I didn't own a car. To get to the office, I would walk from my house in Fry Street, Holland Park to Cavendish Road. I'd catch a bus from Cavendish Road to Cooperu train station. Then I'd catch a train from Cooperu to Central Station in the city, and I'd swap trains from Central to Tuong. So it took me a lot of time to get to work, and I did that for a while because I couldn't afford a car. I think that taught me a strong work ethic. And today we have the privilege of sitting in our nice cars and cruising to work with air conditioning. So I've got to just take things with lots of gratitude and not take them for granted. And I think that's helped me have, I guess, a stronger work ethic or resilience, you could say in the way I operate because there's nothing that's too hard now. Everything is a lot easier than what it was. And that's helped me a lot. I think it has. So in Australia, we have many markets within markets and they're all different around Australia. And you'll talk to one person and they'll say, yes, it's softening a little bit. And you'll talk to another person and they'll say, yeah, things are okay. How are things in your market and what are the unique characteristics of working in that inner west area of Brisbane? I think we're very blessed to be in this area. This is a very strong area in terms of median sale price is higher than most sides of the city. It's probably the best education precinct of Brisbane. It drives a lot of families from south side suburbs and other suburbs to come into these good school catchments. When you look at the top 10 schools on the NAPLAN scores, six of them are in the inner west. So it's very good for education. I think that's a big driver for us. Our market is probably not too dissimilar to other markets nationally. We're in very low supply volume, so the inventory levels are low. 
listings are down between 30 and 60%, depending on which suburbs you look at. So as an agent, it's harder to find stock. I think if I had to call the market, and I'm not good at making predictions, I've got them wrong plenty of times before, I believe that this short supply is not going to remain forever. I think over the next six months, at some point, you'll see a tangible increase in supply. And as that happens, I think that'll impact on values negatively and we'll see a softening of prices. So I expect that we'll face some challenges and maybe a bit of turbulence in our market late this year, early next year. I think at that time, interest rates have probably peaked. We may be in a technical recession. I think we'll see supply increase. Sentiment might be at a low point. And for me, that's a time that I won't want to be selling as much as I'd want to be buying. And that's probably where the opportunities will present. So for the next six months, I think it's probably going to be challenging for agents. I think it's going to be an easy market, but supply side will increase from what I can sense. Yeah, it's interesting you say that a lot of people are sort of have a similar sentiment there. I guess from the point of view of just how are you preparing for the next six months if you think it's going to be a bit choppy, like mindset-wise, business-wise, what are some of the things that you're thinking about right now? Yes, it's just having very honest and direct conversations with our current clients and the pipeline of sellers that we have. So they're aware of what could potentially happen. I think it's important as an agent not to be one-sided, to be too dogmatic or fixated on your opinion. We've seen the most credible people's opinions turn out to be completely wrong. At the beginning of the pandemic, we were told that the market's going to come down 30%. The analysts, the economists, all the banks were very negative and bearish markets. The opposite happened. I've got to be careful that I don't have a fixed view and we could all be wrong. If we're all thinking the same thing, maybe we're all wrong. So I just want to have a very balanced approach to conversations. This is the evidence that we're seeing in the market and I need to convey that accurately to my clients. I don't see the likelihood of prices going up in the next three or six months. It doesn't feel that way. I can't promise that, but I'm not seeing the evidence to support that. So for me, You would either want to transact very soon before we see more supply and more competition, or if you felt differently, and I say that to the client, if you have a different opinion, if you feel that our market is stronger in six months' time, then you shouldn't sell now. Wait and wait for a better opportunity to sell. I'm not seeing any evidence of that, but if you feel that way, go with your opinion. For me, I see it two ways. Either we take advantage of the low supply, and the media hasn't caught on to, I guess, what the market sentiment is. There's a little bit of media negativity, but I don't think the media is current with their statistics. They look at settled sales and settled sales are lagging sometimes a two, three, four months before today. I think today's market, the media will speak about later this year. So I'm seeing an opportunity now to sell without much competition when sentiment is not at its low point. It's still softening, but not at a low point. Alternatively, I would say to the client, if you don't want to start soon, then be mindful that later this year or early next year may not be a great time as we get closer. And my suggestion is then maybe wait and see how things go after that. Let's watch this current cycle. Let's wait for it to improve. And then when we see another uptick in the market, maybe that's the time to put the property on. So give them two different approaches. One is let's move quickly. The other is let's delay the campaign and wait for the market to improve. Yeah, I think the key thing over the last couple of years is just really remaining adaptable, isn't it? Because as you just said, you know, if you'd told someone at the end of 2019 that we'd all be locked down in three months' time, they would have said that we're crazy. So it's hard to predict these days. 
So most of the other agents listening to this, I want to ask some questions of you, nothing like being put on the spot that will perhaps help them through this period or even younger agents that might be listening to this sort of thinking, well, how do I do it like Alex Jordan? So the first question is, we'll start easy. So from your experience, what are the three things you think every successful real estate agent has to have all the three qualities that you think are most important? Yeah, interesting. Firstly, anyone that's listening, you can do better than me because I struggled for 10 or 12 years in my career. I did a lot of things wrong and you can have success a lot quicker than what I experienced. So I don't think you need to follow me. There's probably a lot of things I'm not doing right still in my business. There's a lot of gaps in my business that we need to rectify. Qualities. I think empathy is important. I think you need to be able to connect with people. This is a relationship-based business. It's based on connection and trust. And if you're not able to have an honest conversation and hear them out, listen intently to what they say and connect with people, then I think it's hard to then become the choice of agent for them. So for me, the connection with a human relationship, empathy selling, I think those things are really effective. And I think they'll always be, despite AI and chat GPT, the human-to-human interaction I think is vital and we can't outsource everything. So for me, that's a really important element. Um, Secondly, I think market knowledge. I think as an industry, the level of knowledge that the average agent holds or possesses, I think is undercooked, if I can be direct. I think there's a lot of us that just sort of take this casually. I think if you want to really have a strong business in this industry, you've got to have some understanding of the financial markets, about the economy. You have to have intelligent conversations with business people about what's happening with rates, what's happening with inflation, what's happening with stocks, what's happening with yields. And to have those discussions with knowledge, I think will really help fast track your career and you'll stand out. And market knowledge too, you know, intimately get to know how property development works, what the zoning looks like, what can you build on a block, setbacks from the front boundary, back boundary, what's the cost of construction today, a little bit about architecture, what's the different type of flooring, a tile, oak, Caesar stone, Esser stone, smart stone, quantum quartz, and really get intimate and become hyper-knowledged about these things. Because ultimately, if you walk through a home and you can speak intelligently and articulate your knowledge well, I think you become a very compelling option because the other agents probably are having more, I would say, surface-level conversation, whereas you could be a lot more detailed. So product knowledge and market knowledge and industry knowledge, I think, is really important. Another characteristic of a successful agent is be prepared for rejection and invite rejection into your life because ultimately the more no's you get, the more successful you'll become. And the people that say they don't like rejection, it's going to be really hard to succeed. No one likes rejection, but you've got to recalibrate your mind about rejection. It is a numbers game. We're in an industry where you're going to get a lot of no's and you're going to have to deal with that emotionally and psychologically. Getting over issues or negative things in your life quickly, resilience is vital, I think. We're all going to get knockbacks. And in my team, I try and coach them to invite rejection. So if you are going to door knock someone, expire a listing that's been withdrawn, I want you to get rejected. So rather than going with the expectation of knocking on the door and them saying, welcome, I'm glad you're here, please, here's the form pre-filled and I'm here to sign it. Let's go in with the understanding that we don't have a relationship with these people. We need to add some value to them. Don't go in asking for anything. Go and provide something to them and get ready and prepared for them to say, no, thank you. I don't need to speak with you. Goodbye. Because if you have that mindset, then you're less likely to be disappointed. 
Whereas if you expect this welcoming approach to a doorknock or, or a call, you're probably going to get disappointed because that's going to be how people receive in many cases. So for me, it's just the way the brain works and the mindset of how you approach these things. So I would say there are probably three important things that come to me just off the top of my mind. There's probably a lot of others, but those are for me quite vital. Yeah, amazing. So you just mentioned that you've made a lot of mistakes in your career, and I think you just alluded to it again. And even people like Richard Branson say you actually learn more from making mistakes than you do from your successes almost because it teaches you what not to do. Could you share with us if there is one, a challenging property sale that you've managed and how you managed to navigate through that? Yeah, I've had a lot of challenging property sales in my 24 years. To your point, Sam, it was, I was listening to a podcast with a couple of very successful business people. One of them was a billionaire and they questioned him on success. And they said, what makes you successful? And he said, making the right decisions or making good decisions. And then they asked him, well, what makes you make good decisions? And he said, experience. And they said, what gives you experience? He said, making poor decisions, making mistakes. So it starts from making mistakes. And I think we've got to accept that. For me, challenging properties, I've had a number of them. Those that have been on the market for six, eight months plus, that you have to manage the relationship. It's a difficult task because you get questioned along the way. Sometimes it's not your fault. It's the market that's changed. But as an agent, if you're not bringing in offers and getting a reasonable outcome, you're the person that the finger's pointed at. So it's about managing that relationship with that vendor. The vendor needs to know that you're on their side fighting for them, that you're backing them with everything, that you understand their pain and their frustration and you're sharing that with them. And you hope that they'll be light at the end and you'll do everything you can to get there. It's very hand-on-heart for me, those conversations, because ultimately you're at risk of losing that listing due to a lack of performance. And I've had a number of properties that have been on for six, eight months that I don't know if I would have stuck with myself all that time. If I was the vendor, I probably would have looked elsewhere. But it was frequency of contact. This is really vital in our industry. Agents that are making a vendor call once or twice a week, I don't think that is going to be as effective as a daily conversation. So four to six contacts a week by text or phone call. My suggestion would be to do it early in the day. Make that phone call to your vendor in the morning so they know that you are thinking about them. Don't let them question you all day wondering what you're doing for them and where you're at. So make that call early. Let them know what's going on. And if you've got no news, that's cool as well. You know, last night we didn't have any inquiries overnight. Market's a little bit slow still in terms of buyer activity. Open house schedule for this Saturday at 11, 1130. I've got the buyer inspection still booked in for Friday at 10 o'clock, just making sure you're okay with that. Any questions for me? And I always ask along the way, I'd say, Sam, are you happy with how we're operating? And is there anything you'd like me to do differently? I need to explore, I need to dig deep like me to do differently because often you don't hear the objection because you haven't dug deep enough to ask the question and then suddenly they say i'm sorry we're going with another agent you're like oh no what have we done wrong and i think you should have done this or you should have done that so i want to get that out let's discuss it now let's try and overcome these issues so for me asking really vital questions having frequency of contact preferably in the morning and hand on heart discussions i think will benefit the agent in the long run yeah, that's a really good tip, actually. It just reminded me of, I think it might have been the year that you spoke at Eric, Kate Smith did too, who happens to be the top agent, I think, areas in South Australia. And she said that you should always call first, never give the vendor a reason to call you because you've always called them first. That's true. I agree with that. I get scared when the vendor calls me. I'm like, oh no, what's happening here? I call them frequently. And look, sometimes I have 10 points of contact with my vendor in a week. 
you know, I might have two on one day and one on the other and three on the other. And sometimes it's just a text message, you know, hi, Sam, just wanted to touch base. No new inquiries today. I'll keep you posted on any activity. Very simple, straight to the point. But it gives them comfort that this agent is thinking about me. They are on top of their game. They know what they're doing. I don't have to worry about them. They know what they're doing. But when you leave a few days gap in communication, they're questioning your process. What are you doing? Are you talking about my house or are you distracted with the other homes that you've got? Are you introducing buyers to my property? What's going on? So I want to make sure that that concern is alleviated and I never run into that situation. So frequency of contact, I think, is the best way of building trust and a relationship. Sometimes the bad things come out. They say, well, Alex, this is what we'd like to do differently. We don't like the price on it as it is. We'd like to take the price off or we think that marketing should look different. I always ask those questions along the way. And the answer is typically, no, we think you're doing great. Everything's perfect. We're happy. But as long as I know what's going on, then I know how to manage it accordingly. Yeah, absolutely. You're in a really competitive area, like, and there are some big real estate names in Brisbane or in the inner suburbs of Brisbane, and maybe not the inner west, but all around. What sort of branding and marketing strategies, I know this is a big question, have worked for you in the past? Like, how do you stand out from some of those other big agents with big brands? I think with branding, you've got to be a bit passionate about branding if you want to get it right. Today's consumer likes the minimalist brands, the ones like Apple. So the way you portray yourself, whether it's on realestate.com, on domain, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox drops, anything that you put out there, you know, it has to have alignment. And for me, there's got to be a level of cohesion and consistency. So you've got to be careful, you know, look cheesy in this industry. I think this is my opinion. I'm not saying I'm right. I'll share with you what I think works. I think face boards on signs are not effective. I used to be at an agency where you put a big mugshot of yourself on the signboard. For me, the consumer has evolved. It's a lot more intelligent than that. So I think you've got to have a minimalist approach. There's got to be a consistency in the look and feel. You've got to be careful what you put out on social because really all of these digital platforms that we utilize are effectively our resume. So the consumer can come and study you, just like you mentioned on Instagram, and see you know what sort of properties you're selling and what sort of comments are people making and what do your kids look like and what's your day-to-day life look like. I'm a bit private. I'm not a very extroverted person. I'm introverted in my personality, which is weird to get into this industry. So I don't like putting too much of myself on social, but I understand the business benefits of putting yourself out there. So for me, it's got to be very cohesive. The letterbox drops, they have to be good. The look and feel. What sort of paper are you printing them on? Is it on 60 GSM office paper that looks flimsy and cheap? Or did you go and buy some quality 100 GSM paper from Officeworks? You want lots of white space. Everything that we do, I would say a very high standard, or maybe I'm a control freak in terms of quality of what goes out. So I need to make sure there's alignment of text. If anything is out by a slight touch, we scrap it, print it again. So Because we're being judged by all this. If you can't, as an agent, market yourself well, then the consumer will perceive that you're not able to market their property well. So when I put anything out in the letterbox, it's got to be very high quality. For me, a really good way of building your brand in this industry is by doing quality and thorough market reports, detailed market reports that are suburb-specific or geographically focused. And those reports, for me, build more credibility and profile than any other element that I can add to to my business. So I invest heavily in market reports. 
social media, sponsored ads for the properties that we sell, which is vendor funded. We do letterbox drops. We don't have our faces on emails, on our brochures, on our signboards, on anything really. We try and avoid that because we're not here to, it's not just about us. You've got to make sure that when you're selling a product, the property is under the limelight and the agent is a step behind. Sometimes the agent's face becomes more dominant than the actual property. So to me, it's got to have the right look and feel. If that's your target market, you might be focusing on a lower end area. I think this would still apply, but you've got to be careful. I think the the old sort of 80s look real estate agent that has a really messy letterbox drop with lots of logos and pictures and words and colors, and it's starting to be phased out. I think the consumers become more intelligent. So branding for me has to have consistency, and then it's about visibility, exposure, and how do you gain that? I think there's no better platform than social to try and gather an audience, and the only way to do that is to pay to play. And for me, vendor-paid marketing on social is really important. It's about 20% of our buyer inquiry at the moment, and for us, it's a campaigns. Yeah, amazing. Actually, it's funny, you mentioned Apple earlier and what you were describing there in the letterbox drops of some of the lower quality ones sounded a bit like JB Hi-Fi, no disrespect to them, but, you know, like it is completely different branding aimed at completely different markets, yeah? Yeah, it is. You've got to find your consumer. Who's your consumer? You don't want to look too fancy. But I think having a clean, minimalist look has general appeal. So if you've got letterbox drops going out, you know, what's something I experienced, Sam, for years and years, when I said I did things wrong, I did so many things wrong. I used to do quality printed DL cards. So I'd get them professionally printed. It was a DL glossy looking thing. And I find that an A4 page on a 100 GSM paper folded in three has a better response rate than a DL card. Why is that? I think there's an element of ad blindness for anything that looks like a marketing material. So it gets put in a separate pile. It's like, oh, that's rubbish. That's recycling. The letter seems to have more genuine or connected response from my experience. So we don't do any DLs anymore. And I've probably done over a million five hundred DLs in my life, but that was phased out many years ago. Yeah, that's a great tip. Everything's a test till it isn't. Yeah. So you mentioned Chat GPT before, and my next question was going to be about technology. I love Chat GPT. It sort of allows me to speed up so many things in my business, but I am terrified as the customer of several real estate agents that all we're going to see is automated emails from chat GPT, you know, in the next however long and lots of emojis in our Facebook ads. In what ways do you see chat GPT enhancing the real estate experience or enhancing productivity for a real estate agent? Look, I'm not an expert at that, Sam. I think it will create lots of efficiencies within the business rather than spending three hours trying to put together an article. You could just put a few words in chat GPT and two minutes later, it's all written for you. So I do see there's a path of more efficiency that we all have to adopt and adapt. However, I actually feel that this AI business that's coming in will be a benefit to real estate agents that are willing to continue building relationships and the human-to-human interaction. Because what's going to happen, in my view, is in two, five, ten years' time, Agents will get lazy, as all human nature is, to look at the easiest path and the simplest way. They'll outsource a lot of the human-to-human connections to ChatGPT, or everyone will be doing the same stuff that's sent out en masse. And then as an agent, you can stand out. You can actually be someone that's zigging while everyone's zagging, where you pick up the phone and you connect with that person and you build a relationship of trust 
So I see an opportunity that as everyone tries to go towards tech and AI and outsourcing the human-to-human contact, you actually go in a different direction. You take advantage of a little bit of AI, but you maintain that human-to-human interaction. Because for me, you'll never be able to replace that. Well, never is probably a strong word, but not in my lifetime. I don't think that will happen. It's going to be hard for a robot to have that connection with a human. Maybe in years to come, it'll eventually get there, but we're a while away from that. So I'm not big on ChatGPT yet. There are some items that I think that would be beneficial for us to use them. I've got to become a better adopter of that um, technology. But I do feel that in a few years' time, a lot of agents will likely use that too much and the agents that don't will stand out. Yeah, interesting. I agree with you, actually. Good answer. You just talked about nurturing clients and I imagine there's a cycle everyone goes through in real estate that takes them from one moment they're not in real estate mode to the next moment some sort of trigger in their life happens and then all of a sudden they're looking to buy, looking to sell, looking to rent somewhere, that sort of thing. Strategies do you find are most effective in nurturing relationships with your clients that are maybe not in real estate mode so that when they are triggered, you are the agent of choice? Yeah, that's a great question. I think in this industry, we're too quick to categorize people. What I mean by that is there's a tenant and they'll get a certain level of service from us. Then there's a buyer and we'll give them different service and different treatment. And then there's a potential seller and they'll probably get the best treatment and service from us. In reality, it's the same person at a different stage of their life. So today's tenant is tomorrow's buyer. Today's buyer is tomorrow's seller. For me, every opportunity you have to interact with someone, it gives you a chance to add some value to their lives. So treat them with a great deal of respect, whether it's a tenant or a seller, they should be treated equally. And I think if you have that approach to relationship building, people will follow you, they'll gravitate towards you. Instead of saying to the tenant that I'm up here and you're down here, the hierarchy system, I always say to my team, let's lower ourselves and let the other person be the bigger person. And we just stand in the background. For us in real estate, we probably meet more buyers than any other category of person. So on an average week, an agent, depending on their volume of stock, might meet 20 buyers. Some might meet 200, depending on what volume of listings they're running. So how do we treat those relationships? Because you're not going to meet more people in any other category than buyers that have inquired on property. So there's an opportunity to connect with them, to build a relationship. Sure, they might not own or be ready to sell, but they will always be a property owner at some stage and they'll always become a seller at some stage. So all these conversations today, if you can add value to them, provide them with something that's a benefit to them, that's not self-serving, that's not asking for anything back. For us, it's data. It's so easy to access. If I'm dealing with a buyer and they've inquired on something and they're not interested in it, I can either let that go, not give them any further service, they don't like the property, which is what we typically do, and I'm guilty of that too, or I can put together a list of what's sold within a certain price bracket in that area, very easy to do on CoreLogic or on PriceFinder, and send them a PDF by text. We're just thinking about you. I know you inquired on this property that's sold between five. Here's a list of everything that's sold between one million and two million within a four-kilometer radius. Thought this would be of interest to you. Hope you're well. Cheers, Alex. Send that through to them. So just little touches that we've got access to these statistics, they don't. So for us, it's very easy and simple. For them, it's It's like, oh, wow, this is interesting. So for me, there's an opportunity to add value in that manner without asking for anything. And by doing that, I assure you as an agent, anyone that's listening, if anyone is listening to me, that you will get this back in multiples. These people will come back to you. I've had tenants 
that have become sellers, and I've sold three or four properties for them, but they were my tenants 15 years ago. And they didn't like real estate agents when I first met them, but we built a relationship of trust and care and consideration, and now they're strong clients and they refer me business. So it's important that we treat every opportunity to interact with someone as something of value, and we want to add value to their lives. Yeah. Actually, I'm hitting the like button again on that, answer. It's funny, like we bought a house a few months back, November last year, and we haven't heard from the real estate agent since. Yet we talk on this podcast so much about following people up and making calls, but it is clear that people sometimes don't. Why do you think that is? I've done that, Sam. I'm guilty of this over the years. I think it's probably sometimes you feel like too much time has passed and you're almost like, what do I say now? Like November, they bought this house off me. I haven't spoken to Sam since November. This is like eight months ago. But I think you've got to get over that because you could keep having that inner dialogue, which I did. I think we've got to simplify it. How do you simplify it? It's very basic. I mean, you don't even need a database. You could categorize them in your phone. So someone buys a house off you, set it up how you want. I might say the house emoji and then Sam, your name, and the address of the property you want. So now I know that Sam is a property owner within the suburb. So if anything else that's sold in the suburb near you, if whether I'm involved or another agent, I can just send you a quick text. I could set up a template in notes with all the data that I want. So, you know, three people, three offers, 20 groups through, sold for 1.5 million. And then I personalize it and just write a short introduction text. Hi, Sam. I hope as well. I hope all is well and that you're enjoying your new home with your beautiful family. I just thought I'd keep you posted on a recent sale and then copy and paste that template from notes. Bang, send, done. Something simple as that keeps that communication line open. Every so often, it's nice to make a call and check in. How are you doing? How's it there? You know, what are you enjoying most about the home? Anything I can help you with? Um, but I think the text message is a sort of way if someone's nervous about the discussion of just keeping them updated with what's happening in their area. And it could be very simple. You know, I noticed this one sold a neighboring street and it made me think of you. I was driving past your home and it made me think of you. I love what you've done with the front garden. It's just got to be simple. It can be very quick. You could do 20 of these texts today if you wanted to. And that, for me, builds that relationship. So I think, why don't we do it? We forget. We don't have it systemized. We then think too much time has passed and we get worried that it's been too long. We don't know what to say. It's probably a combination of those things, I would assume. That's what I felt anyway. Yeah, I was going to say, I can see how that would happen because sometimes with my friends, I think, gosh, it's a long time since I've called XYZ. What am I going to say? But I suppose. In a real estate context, if it makes anyone out there feel better, it feels like I moved yesterday. <laughs> so You just unpacked the last boxes. Sometimes it's like that. But, you know, it's very simple stuff. I think sometimes we complicate it too much. It's like we feel like if we've got to make the call, we've got to say something profound. And No, it's just a, hey, catch up. I know I drove past your home. It looks beautiful. Simple things, I think, make a big difference. But that frequency is vital because if you don't maintain that relationship, 5% of the market is selling at any point in time. That person that bought off you three years ago is probably a seller in the next couple of years. Some of them are selling three or four years. Some of the cycles are seven years. Everyone's selling eventually. And if they don't have a relationship with you, they almost feel reluctant to come back to you. It almost backfires that you sold it to them, but you didn't build a strong relationship post the sale. And that might rule you out. I mean, if you hadn't sold it to them, maybe they would have called you in. But if they feel like the relationship wasn't maintained and you sort of disconnected, I think that can become a bigger issue. So a few text messages, calls, anniversary cards, 
per annum, you know, so you've been a year in the home and hopefully you've created some beautiful memories. Um, just little things make a big difference, but the agent needs to be willing to systemize that. You'd best to put it in calendar or in your database, in your CRM, but it's not complicated. I think if we all did that more religiously, we'd see a better response from the market. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's talk awards. You are the top agent in Queensland right now. So congratulations, if I didn't say that before, congratulations of such a big achievement and for the second time with the areas. What does the second area mean to you? Oh, Sam, I never really sort of look at myself as the top agent. I think there's a lot of agents that were in the top 10 that could have been number one and they were just as deserving as I was. I feel very lucky and privileged to be named number one and I'll milk it for what I can. It feels like all of that persistence and the hard times and the times that I questioned myself within this industry and almost left the industry, that feels good. That feels like, okay, this was worth it. You know, you've achieved something. You've got somewhat of a successful career now, which you struggled with. And, you know, interestingly, in 2011, I wanted to leave real estate. I wanted to get out of this industry. I had a bad health diagnosis. You know, I was financially broke. The floods hit in Brisbane. I lost my listings that were flood affected and my pipeline of sellers that were impacted. The streets were a mess and I was underperforming anyway. So I couldn't afford my rent and I couldn't afford my car repayments. And I grew up in housing commission. You know, I've shared a post ball double bunk bed in my sisters until I was 17 and a half, 18 years old. I had a double bunk bed in a housing commission home. So I don't come from any great pedigree or good background. My parents aren't financially well off. So when I was broke, I didn't know who to go to. And I mom and dad, as you do, and said, hey, guys, this is 12 years ago now. I just need $5,000 to pay off my rent and my car repayments. And my parents would give anything to their kids, and they've always been very giving to me. So they gave me $5,000. They'd borrow it against their equity. Interestingly, my parents bought the house in 2001, and they owed the same amount of mortgage in 2020, because for 20 years, they were interest only with a line of equity to use their equity to live. So in 2011, I got the five grand and I thought, oh, man, I can't do this anymore. You know, in this industry for now, almost 12 years, I can't make a living here. I just want a stable income. Give me 80 grand a year and I'm out. So I was looking for opportunities at any sales role. So I looked at sales reps for pharmaceuticals, which I'm not a big fan of that industry, but I looked into that. And I would have taken anything. And luckily, I wasn't given any opportunities, luckily, because I kept with the industry. And in 2011, I was financially broke. And in 2020, I paid off my parents' mortgage in full. So this industry can give a lot. I don't think there's any other career path that you could take as an agent without education, without a huge amount of training or university degrees, and then come in and earn the incomes or careers that some agents do. So very grateful for being here. And the number one status, it feels like an achievement, but I don't expect that it'll continue to happen. We've been very lucky to get that. In, in REB and REA. And if it happens again, then we'll be very satisfied. I don't expect it, Sam. And I know there's other agents that are very deserving of it. As well. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of luck involved there, actually, because I did some back of the bar coaster numbers from your 2020 win versus 2022. And I think you're like up well, it's nearly 100 million. Is that right? In sales between those two years? Yeah, I think we're, we average about 125, 130 sales a year on market. We're doing about 20 off market. Our average sale price is around 2 million. The median's a bit lower. So we're doing about roughly 300 million per annum in total volume. We do charge a higher commission rate than a lot of the 
competitors. So that's a big hurdle for us in terms of listing presentations. I'm at 3.3% commission. Some of the competitors that I'm up against at the higher end of the market who are very well established and reputable are charging 2.5, 2.75. Some are at 2, 2.2. I've had some try and cut under 2 to win the business. So for me, the volume has to be strong, but the average com is really important as well. Because if I went back from a 3.3% commission agent to a 2.2%, well, that's a 33% reduction in my business, which would be quite costly. So for us, the volume, I look at the, the key metric that I look at is the KPI that I study is market share. So that's the biggest focus of myself. When I look at the suburbs that we operate in, the main focus is market share. Because the market changes, and sometimes it gets bigger, sometimes it gets smaller. We can remain dominant in those spaces, and we're on the right track. In the last, I'd say, 12 months, when I speak to other agents, the stories that I'm hearing, uh, most of the industry has come back 30 to 50%. Those that did 500 GCI in 2021 are doing 300 GCI today. And that's more a function of less volume and availability of stock. The market's become a little more difficult to trade. Average days on markets expanded. So I know that the industry changes, but if you can remain dominant as market share, that's a key metric of ours. And that's our main focus. That's what I continue to study every time I'm looking at the numbers. It's all about market share. Yeah. So just one or two more questions quickly. With winning that secondary award and pretty much all of the awards that you've won, what drives you to keep pushing the boundaries in your work? And what's your goal for next year? Yeah, I'm not very business goal orientated as some others might be. I don't sit down and say next year I'm going to do this many million GCI. I think my management team would like me to be more like that and maybe I should. My life goals, I think, are probably starting to show themselves more in terms of what I need to do for my health. So they're more health-orientated goals and focusing on myself to have more longevity in my career, balance between work and life and more present and focused time with my children. I'm not distracted and on the phone or doing emails and texts while they're trying to have a conversation with me. In terms of business goals, my intention is to continue to build market share in the key geographic areas that we focus on. If we can do that as a team, then I know that the byproduct of the GCI is there as a byproduct. I want to have good working relationships with people. I want to enjoy my job. I want to have good contact and I don't want to deal with too much difficulty in terms of bad clients that can tax you and really take away from you. So I'm a bit more selective with what we take on. Some of the listings that we've been offered that have been very high-priced properties, we've walked away from respectfully because we felt that the relationship started off wrong, the energy wasn't right, and, you know, the person wasn't committed to the process and sort of see the writing on the wall that, hey, if we took this on, we're going to be working on it for three, six, eight months and probably won't get a sale. It's not really worth our time. And it's not going to be good for the vendor either. So let's try and cut it now. So I think that my goals are more continue to do what I'm doing with McGrath. It's a brand that I am passionate about, I believe in, I like the ethos, the culture, the ethic of how things should work in this industry. It comes from the top down and John Sims is the person that sort of set these standards, which I believe in. And build a team. I think the way we've maintained our GCI or our volume is by expanding geographically the areas that we're in the volume contracted so we just thought well hey we've got to take another couple of suburbs with the help of team members to try and compensate for the lack of volume in our core market that's how we've managed to maintain that to a great degree yeah amazing 
Well, Alex, it's been so good to meet you and get to know you. And I just want to thank you for sharing some of your wisdom and knowledge with our listeners, because I'm sure that there's a lot of pens being picked up all the way through this, writing some notes down. So thank you very much for that. If there was one thing that you'd like to leave everyone with, what would it be? Oh, that's a real deep question, Sam. Believe in yourself. You're going to have challenges in your life. There's going to be times that you'll question yourself, you'll question your career. Persistence pays off. There's a cycle in everything. There's a cycle in nature. There's a cycle in real estate. The market will be challenging at times and will get better. But as long as you're willing to ride those waves and remain positive, have a positive attitude, there will be light at the end. So for me, it's self-belief is really vital. Amazing. Alex Jordan, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Elevate podcast. With thanks to connectnow.com.au. Don't forget to get access to all of Elite Agent's premium resources, including a detailed episode guide for this podcast. Visit joineliteagent.com.